Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, get them open to Mark chapter 1. If you do not have a Bible, there is a black Bible in the seat back in front of you. You get to page 887 of that. You'll be with us in Mark chapter 1. And we think it's important um, that you follow along with us to see that what we're talking about isn't our opinion, um, which is irrelevant. Uh, but what we're talking about is truths from the eternal, timeless Word of God. And so um, if you could join us there, we'd appreciate any other supporting verses. We'll put them on the screens for you. And I just want to thank you all for being here. I want to thank uh, the praise team for leading us in that time. And uh, if you're here and this is your second hour being here and you joined us for the combined communion today, then we're grateful uh, that you stuck around and, and, and joined us for the service as well. Hello to anybody in the overflow room or join us online. Uh, we're glad that, that however you're making this a part of your day, we're glad that you're here with us and uh, trust the Lord will bless it. And if you're a guest this morning, um, please know that we are incredibly excited that you're here. Uh, we know how hard it is to try something new. And so uh, if you could uh, just go uh, at the end of the service, go out those doors and stop by the welcome desk. There'll be people there uh, waiting for you to have a gift for you uh, for trying something new and, and letting us, uh, letting us, giving us a shot today. And we're grateful for that. Uh, before we jump into this uh, message, I'm going to ask you to join me in a word of prayer. So let's pray. Father, we're grateful uh, for all that you do, uh, for all that you are, uh, for all that you provide, Lord, for everything uh, that you're about, um, and, uh, and we uh, are the direct beneficiaries of so much of it, uh, Lord, and so um, we come before you today humble, we come before you today empty-handed, and just asking you to, ha- to have your way in this room, Lord, as we uh, continue on what you've already started in the praise of your name, Lord, that you would just continue on through the teaching of your word. Uh, through the witness of baptism, that glorious picture. Um, God, through everything that's about to happen, uh, we pray that you'd get the glory from all of it, that you would speak loudest, uh, that you would move as you see fit, and that we would respond humbly and submissively to you. And we ask this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. So, Corinne and I have been married for about 16 and a half years now, and in that time, you know, over 16 plus years, you start to develop rhythms. You start to know each other a little bit better. And for instance, I, I, have, I have figured her out, right? I, I, I've learned when she really wants something, right? And so she has a strategy of what she thinks is the best way to ask me something, which is to not ask me for it, right? And so here's how she does it. Like it her strategy is a smart one. She, she brings something up that she's just learned about or newly excited or newly interested in, and I don't really take any bait at that point, right? Because if it's the first time I'm hearing about it, there's really nothing that exciting or threatening about it. But if she brings it up a second time, my antenna starts going up. And if it gets brought up a third time, here's what I know for sure. I'm going to be asked to purchase something, right? And so, so at this point, I have a decision. I either let it play out fourth, fifth, sixth time. But lately, I'm just like, let's just skip all that. And I cut right to the question. As soon as she brings something up a third time, I'm like, all right, just, just, just stop. What's this going to cost me? Just, I just, let's just get right to it, Right? Because clearly you've researched this, clearly you've looked into it, clearly you're excited about, I just need to know what it's going to cost. And what I'm learning is this, the longer it takes her to answer that question, let's just say that's not a good thing for me, all right? Now, I love my wife, 16 years in, I'm still crazy about her, and so I have, I hate saying no to her, I hate it, right, on anything. And so my predisposition to her is just to find a way to say yes, to make it work somehow. But there's a reason that I have to know what does it cost, Because there's a question that needs to be followed up with that's just as important as that first question, and it's this. Is it worth it? 
What does it cost and is it worth it? Because of my affinity for her and my desire for her to flourish most often, the answer to that is yes. But these two questions are incredibly important as we navigate life. They're important for all of us because we humans, by nature, are driven. We live lives of pursuit. You got out of bed and went somewhere this morning. You have goals. You have ambitions. There are things that you're working towards. There are things that you're working on. There are things that you're sacrificing for. And sadly, there's an awful lot of times where human beings end up regretting their pursuits, where they put a lot of effort and a lot of cost and a lot of work into something, and it just didn't really pay off like we thought. It just didn't bring the joy and fulfillment that we had hoped. And I believe that we can avoid a lot of these regrets, a lot of these self-inflicted wounds with just these two questions. What is this costing me, and will it be worth it? You see, there's something that you're pursuing There's something that you're sacrificing for. There's something that you're living for. There's something that you're putting your hope in and finding your identity in. And my prayer is that today's passage in the book of Mark will lead you to ask those two questions. What is this costing me and will it ever be worth it? Because what we're going to see is this, that Jesus Christ has a kingdom and a calling for each of us and it absolutely will cost us something. It has to. But there is a whole cloud of witnesses who have gone before us, and each of them would tell us it's absolutely worth it. Do whatever he says. So if you're here this morning, you're wondering if you're living for the right things, or if you're here and you've been living a life of cost avoidance, you're always looking for the easiest road, or you avoid change or interruption like it's the plague, you hold on to your plans tightly. I'm praying that you allow Jesus and God's word to challenge all of that directly today. So I'm going to invite Shelby McConaughey up to read today's passage. She's going to be reading for you in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 20. Um, And as she makes her way up here, if you are physically capable, would you please stand with her to honor the reading of God's word this morning? A nice long walk for you, wasn't it? Good morning, church. After John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As he passed alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, Simon's brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Follow me, Jesus told them, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, putting their nets in order. Immediately, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Thank you, Shelby. You guys have a seat. All right, so if you were with us last week as we were going through Mark chapter 1, we looked at verses 9 through 13, and what we talked about was the, the baptism and temptation of Jesus. Right, and so here in verse 14, we read that, that Jesus is going to Galilee. Now, one thing I want you to know is that chronologically, okay, Jesus stayed in Judea for a while after his temptation. And, I, and, I, and Mark doesn't include that because I told you at the start of, of Mark, right, that each gospel writer had a specific focus and specific goal. And so Mark isn't trying to give us a day-by-day account of all that Jesus did. And so you need to know that between verses 13 and verse 14, there's been a passage of time. And one of the things that's happened during that time passing is that John the Baptist has been arrested. And we're going to see that in more detail in chapter 6. 
But while Jesus was doing things in Judea, he's launching his public ministry there, John was still active in Galilee. And Jesus determines, for whatever his sovereign reasons were, that John's arrest signaled the time for him to go to Galilee. And so he goes to that region, and I love this, he goes there, according to Mark, proclaiming good news. And his message is basically this, that the kingdom of God has arrived. In verse 15, Mark summarizes the theme of Jesus' teachings all throughout this region. And his strategy was twofold. Number one, he makes an announcement. And then number two, he calls for response. And the announcement is one that would generate great excitement in Jesus' day. Because the announcement is this. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Now, Jewish people had lived in anticipation of this announcement for hundreds of years. Right? And so Jesus would not have trouble getting people interested in this or excited about this at all. His trouble would come in getting them to understand it. Because the Jewish people, they all knew that the Messiah, the promised one of God, was coming. They all knew that he was coming to establish God's kingdom. But they viewed that through an entirely earthly prism. And so their belief, the most commonly held belief in that day, was that the Messiah establishing, in establishing the kingdom of God would actually establish Israel as the dominant earthly kingdom. And they were living under the heavy oppression of Rome at this time. And so what Rome was, they believed the Messiah would make Israel that and even more. And so think about it. For them, if the kingdom of God was near, they would go from a life of oppression and struggle and being seen as lower class to a life of ease and wealth and affluence and power and influence. And that sounded really, really good. So when Jesus says, it's time, the kingdom is near, you know what they all immediately start picturing. But there's nothing that's in God's word that's in there by accident. Because I hope you noticed everything around this proclamation directly contradicts the widely held Jewish view of the Messiah and God's kingdom. Because what immediately precedes this announcement, Mark, is this, that John the Baptist is in jail. His life didn't get easier. It didn't get more more comfortable or affluent. Right after this, we read how Jesus interrupts his disciples' lives, and in a moment they had to give up a lot. Their life didn't get easier. It didn't get more comfortable. It didn't get more affluent. And Jesus was letting them know in the response. He said, he's, the announcement is the kingdom of God is near, but the response is repent. Repent and believe the good news. Repent means to change your mind, to change what you think, to change what you're trusting in. Stop trusting in this earthly vision of the Messiah and believe in me. Believe in Jesus and his message and his kingdom. And he gets to define his kingdom, by the way. He didn't ask for input. And so make no mistake about it. It is really good news. Jesus Christ has come. God has taken on the form of man. He has come on a mission of redemption. He's already endured the temptation in the desert and passed that test. And now he's going through Galilee proclaiming that, that he is here to establish God's kingdom, this spiritual, eternal, forever kingdom that has no borders, and it is realized whenever people repent and believe and follow his rule. And we get forgiveness and we get eternal life, and we get purpose, and we get to become who we are created to become when we repent and believe in Jesus, because the kingdom of God has arrived. It's here. The second thing we see here from Mark 1 is that God is a God of interruption. And we really don't like interruption, do we? I think that's almost common among the human experience. We have a resistance to anything that we didn't plan on, we didn't expect, and we didn't see coming. We tend to hate ideas that we didn't come up with. 
But I want you to see Jesus' actions here again. Look at verse 16. It says, as he, Jesus, passed alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, Simon's brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Follow me, Jesus told them, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, putting their nets in order. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. So what, tell me, where in that did Jesus call their secretary and schedule a meeting? Where in, where in it does he say, I want you to be my disciple, but think through this with me. What would be the best season of life for you to step into this? Right? Now, it would be unwise and rude for us to just go around interrupting others whenever we felt we wanted to because we can't be trusted with that power. But Jesus can. For one, all authority is his. Right? And so in addition, what he brings our way is what's best for us. And so God's plans do not need to fit into our plans. They trump ours. His will does not need to consult our will. His wins. I want you to see how he operates here. Verse 16 tells us that Simon and Andrew are literally casting a net in the sea. They're actively at work. They're fishing right there. They're right in the middle of doing what they do. And Jesus says, stop that and follow me. Verse 19 tells us that James and John, they're in the boat with their father in the hired men, and they're organizing, they're prepping their boats for their casting. And Jesus says again, no, you too, come and follow me. And for both of these sets of brothers, there's some things that we have to recognize. Number one, this was the family business. They were trained in this. They were brought up in this. They were prepared for this. This was what they were going to do. This is what they had based their future on. This was their plan and their strategy for providing for their family. This is what allowed them to eat and what they had banked on would continue to allow them to eat. They were likely good at it. They hadn't starved. They were still at it, especially the Zebedees. They had hired men, right? They were doing so good. They were expanding the workforce, Right? They had to have some effectiveness, and lastly, a large portion of their life and identity would be in this. How does Mark describe them in verse 16? He says, for they were fishermen. See, it wasn't that different than it is today. People often have identity in what they do. It's how they were known. It's what they did. And those are all really big deals. They're big things. This is their upbringing. This is their future. This is their identity. This is their income. This is their security. This is their heritage. And none of it mattered to Jesus. Well, not so much that it didn't matter to Jesus. It's just that those things don't nearly matter as much as what he had for them to do. And by the way, we see this throughout the scriptures where God shows up and just completely interrupts somebody's life. Showed up to Abram. Abram, I want you to pack everything you have and move yourself and your family away from everything that you've ever known, and I'm not even going to tell you yet where you're going. I'll just tell you when you arrive. How do you think that conversation went over with his wife? He shows up to Moses. Moses, that, that country that you fled because you were wanted for murder, you're going to go back there, and you're going to lead my people out of Egypt. He showed up to Gideon when he's hiding on the bottom floor of a threshing press. And he says, Gideon, you are going to be the one who's going to lead my people to deliverance from their oppressors. And as a bonus interruption a little while later, by the way, Gideon, you have too many soldiers for this war. Don't think that was a problem that Gideon had recognized. He shows up to Mary and Joseph. You are going to raise my son and be shrouded in scrutiny. 
He shows up to Saul. I get that you have such zeal in persecuting my church, but you're going to take my names, the Gentiles and Israelites and kings, and I'm going to show you how much you must suffer for my name. Time and time and time again, God interrupts someone's life, and time and time and time again, their life gets harder, not easier. Now, every time, ultimately, their life was better for it. But do not think for a second that interruptions from the Lord make your life easier. If you follow Jesus long enough, you know he will do this. He will interrupt your life. Things change. Life is unstable. Trials come our way. Plans are altered. Whole new directions are needed. And he's loving through it. He's gracious through it. He's tender through it. But do not mistake this. He does not consult us. He does not filter his plans through our feelings. He does not filter his plans through our preferences. And the reason why is because his goal is to transform us. He is making us into his image. And so cost and pain and reliance have to be a part of that. I mean, sure, he could have given these guys more of a heads up. He could have asked them if they wanted three months to get their affairs in order. He could have set up a schedule with them. You two come this week. The other two come the next week. But he didn't do any of that. He showed up all announced. He said, follow me right now. And he has the prerogative to do that. And so if you're in a time of uncertainty in your life, if if you've recently been interrupted by something and things are changing around you and nothing feels solid, the best advice I can give you in that is to follow Jesus. To just ride this thing out. Because what I've learned is that if something comes along my way that I didn't ask for and I didn't plan for and I didn't seek it out, then the Lord is in it somehow. So don't fight against it. Just seek what he may be up to in it. Because think of it this way. What if these guys had said no? What if Peter and Andrew and James and John would have been too startled by the interruption, too overwhelmed by the enormity of the ask, too frightened by what they would have to give up and just declined to follow? No, their life didn't get easier, but man, it got a whole lot better and they would have missed all of it. And they learn what we all have to learn is this, that your faith should cost you. See, it's not by accident that these stories surround the announcement of the arrival of God's kingdom in the book of Mark. Because there are two complicated factors that have always clouded this undeniable truth of the scriptures that our faith should cost us. And the first complicating factor is that human beings always want ease. We always want the path of least resistance. And the second is that God's kingdom is a kingdom that's built on grace. There's a reason that Jesus said, repent and believe the good news, because it's really good news. We cannot save ourselves. We we are sinners. We don't deserve to be in God's kingdom. We don't deserve to be his children. We deserve death and hell. And there's not a single thing that we can do to change that. That's why Jesus came to bring us back to God to do all that we cannot do. He lived the sinless life that we couldn't live. He was the perfect sacrifice on the cross that our death could never be. He rose again in a way that we never can so that if we repent, we change what we're trusting in and believe in the good news and trust in Jesus and his death and resurrection, then we get the free gift of forgiveness in eternal life. It's free. Ephesians 2 says, you are saved by grace, through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It's God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. And so we have to recognize this reality that my entry into the kingdom is free. 
Salvation is free. Forgiveness is free. Eternal life is free because Jesus paid the entire cost. And these things are only found when they are received freely and without effort. But then we take that wondrous reality and we do something incorrect with it. We combine the free gift of the grace of God with our desire to always have the easiest path and we begin to think and act and believe as if God wants ease for us. Or even worse, that somehow he would owe us a life of ease and comfort because we've believed in him. And so we settle into a faith practice that really costs us nothing and most of the time don't even feel badly about it. But the New Testament paints a starkly different picture, doesn't it? Jesus announces the good news that the kingdom of God has arrived and everybody in that that region, everybody in that time was like, yes, because they thought this would be a costless faith. Bring on the good news, Jesus, because it only comes with ease and blessings and affluence. But look all around. John's in jail. Fishermen are being asked to leave their career and livelihood and identity and upbringing and family in a single moment. The one establishing the kingdom has just been tempted in the wilderness for 40 days without any food, and soon he's going to be beaten and whipped and killed. When exactly does it get easier? 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. You know what Paul is saying there? He's, he's establishing these two realities. He's saying, everything that I am, I am by God's grace. It's all been free. I get no credit for it. I didn't earn it. But what is his response to that grace? His response is effort. His response is cost, sacrifice. He says, I've worked harder than any of them. Is that your experience with Grace. Is that how you respond to the goodness of Christ? Honestly, what can you say your faith has ever cost you? I think American Christians in particular struggle with this for two reasons. Number one, we, we don't face real persecution. Not yet. We're acting like we do already. I understand there are troubling trends, but we don't face real persecution. I was in Germany last month, and, and while I was there, I, was witness, I witnessed the baptism of a man named Zafar, who's now our brother in Christ. Zafar was an Afghan refugee who escaped the Taliban in a boat. He's actually left in the boat with several others. They were just abandoned out there, and they found a way to get to a refugee camp. And while he's at the refugee camp, the Lord began working on his life because he couldn't understand why so many people were just volunteering there, why there were people helping them, why there were people just being there in their own time. And he kept asking them, are you being paid to do this? And they said, no. And finally, one of them told them, you understand we're followers of Jesus, We're here because you matter to us. He thought about that in contrast to the picture of Islam he'd seen in his country, and and that began just to go into work in his heart, and he ended up in Germany. He ended up at Crossway, the church that we support over there, and he gave his life to Jesus Christ. And during his baptism, everybody there was asked not to take any pictures that you would post on social media. And the reason why is because his family in Afghanistan is still tracking him. And if they discover that he's a follower of Jesus, it's punishable by death. And if the Afghanistan government hears about it, even though his relatives aren't Christians, they could also be arrested or killed. And while they're announcing all this, I leaned over to Seth and said, do you think that guy's ever going to need a sermon on burnout? Do you think he's ever going to need a sermon on service or cost? No, he knows on his first step what his faith cost him. Second reason that we struggle with this is that we create church environments that don't ask for cost. 
We make following Jesus way too easy. And I've, I've already bore my soul a lot today, so let's just continue it, right? Let me get personal with you. It's been a heck of a year to be an elder at FBN. We've been interrupted time and time again. Plans have been changed time and time again. And really, I say year, but that's really since 2020. And in this process, we've tried to figure out what in the world God is up to. What is he trying to do with this place? What is he trying to get us to learn? And so one of our goals as, as a board of elders was to identify the greatest spiritual need of this place. We're not a perfect church. I hope you're aware of that. We have weaknesses. We have things that we struggle with. We have places where our culture is really strong and places where our culture is really weak. We have places where our leadership is really strong and where our leadership is really weak. And so we asked the Lord, what is the number one thing that, that's having the most negative effect on our culture and our effectiveness for the gospel? And through a series of meetings and discussions and prayers and inspecting things, the Lord revealed it. That we have a systemic culture of consumerism in our church. Consumerism is defined like this. A consumer receives and receives and receives while others do all the serving and providing. Now, please know, anytime you're diagnosing 400-plus people, you have to be incredibly general. Nobody was thinking of individuals during this. But part of the reason that we could identify this is because we have such a devoted core of folks who just keep serving and just keep pouring themselves out, often at times at the cost of themselves. That we have a culture that has been dependent on time and place and preference being met. And, and we have a dedicated group of servants that would go out of their way to meet those specific demands for all. And too many others were perfectly content with letting them do it. And so what the elders got to work on was this. Lord, how do we shift this culture? How do we inspire others to the joy of service? How do we get to experience, how do we get others to experience the grace that comes our way when, we, when our faith costs us something? As a team, that was our approach. Personally, I went to the Lord with a slightly different question. And the question was this, how did we get here? Because for the past 12 years, I've been a pastor of this place. For the past seven, I've been the lead pastor. And in Matthew 7, Jesus says, you're going to know a tree by its fruit. And so how was it that a church that I had shepherded got to that place? I went to the Lord and said, how did this happen? And he showed me. I've been too cost avoidant. There have been times when changes needed to be made, adjustments needed to happen, strategies needed to change. And most of the times, I just chose the path of least resistance fearful of the pushback, too affected by critique, where God would reveal a change that was needed, and I would set out to make that change by changing as little as humanly possible, to avoid ruffling feathers, to choose ease. And God showed me this. This was the heart, hurtful part, that I didn't even do that just for you. I did it for me because I wanted you to think I was doing a good job, which means in this area I failed you. I've held you back from discomfort. I've held you back from growth. And I can't go back and change anything in the past now. I can only say I'm sorry and that I hope you forgive me. And I don't know. I'm not making any kind of proclamations that I'm going to walk this balance perfectly in the future. I know the Lord has revealed it to me, and I'm grateful for that. And I've asked him to help me through it. But what I can commit to you is this. I know this for sure. I will never stop proclaiming the reality of God's word to you even if my practice of it falters at times. 
And the reality of God's word is that our faith needs to cost us. It has to. When you think of this image that Jesus paints in Matthew 13, it says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that's buried in a field that a man found and reburied. Then in his joy, what does he do? He goes and sells everything he has and he buys that field. You get what Jesus is saying there, don't you? That he and his salvation and his kingdom and the life he has for you is worth more than everything that we have. And he's telling us to live our lives in accordance with that truth. So how do we respond to this? It's been a heavy morning around here. What do do we do? Well, Jesus put it best. He said, repent and believe the good news. And so in that, I think there are three musts for us as a church. There are three things that we must do that will help us live this out. And the first is this. We must fish for people. You understand that was the entire point of the interruption, don't you? Follow me, he told these lifelong fishermen, and I will make you fishers, fish, I'll make you fish for people. It's why the announcement of the coming of the kingdom of God was immediately followed by the command to repent and believe. It's because people are at the heart of every single thing that God does. People are at the heart of everything that God is about. And he's established a kingdom that anyone can enter into by grace through faith. He himself has paid a dear, dear price to make that kingdom available. He was beaten and he was whipped and he was nailed and hung on a cross where he excruciatingly suffered to redeem sinners back to God. And we live and we move and we work and we breathe and we operate in the midst of a lost and dying world. There is no one whose path you cross who does not have a soul. They all will exist forever. It's just whether or not they will spend an eternity in heaven with Christ or whether or not they're going to spend an eternity under God's terrifying wrath in hell. And we have what they need. We have the hope that overcomes the sin in the grave. We have the blessed, glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. We know the way. So we must fish for people. We must share the hope of Jesus Christ. More than any other goal, more than any other aim for every relationship you have, this needs to be number one, that they would know of Jesus and his gospel, and then it's between them and the Lord. We must join Jesus in his mission for people because they matter to him. So they need to matter to us. Secondly, we must combat consumerism. And we live in a culture, in a country where the customer is always right. And as consumers, right, people spend all their waking hours, they're paid a whole bunch of money to think of new ways to meet our ever-increasing demands. I remember about 15 years ago, Burger King had a slogan, have it your way. Well, have it your way has progressed to have it when you want it, how you want it, the way you want it, and even before you thought about you needed it. And we hear that message again and again and again and again. Everywhere we go, that is pounded into our brains. And yet when it comes to the kingdom of God, when it comes to our pursuit of Jesus, our experience in his church and serving our king, we must remember that line of thinking is antithetical to the gospel. It's the opposite of everything that Jesus calls us to. Philippians 2 is our standard. Which Paul tells the Philippians church, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. 
Everyone should look not to his own interest, but rather to the interest of others. That's the mindset. That's the attitude. That's the posture that Jesus demands of us. And remember, he did it for us first. He considered me more important than himself when he took on our form and felt every temptation I'll ever feel. He looked out for my interest, not his own, when he died excruciatingly on a cross to offer me salvation and life. And so if I aim to follow him, I must crucify consumerism within my soul. I must identify it in my life. I must take it to the Lord and repent of it and surrender it to the cross and authority of Jesus. And to have either of those two things be possible, we must believe that Jesus is worth it. It goes all the way back to our questions from the start. What will this cost us? Well, potentially everything, Jesus says, because he reserves the right to ask for anything from us, which makes the second question all the more key. Is it worth it? And the thing is, you're going to have to believe that for yourself. There's no sermon, there's no pep talk, there's no guilt trip, there's not anything that that anybody can do to make you feel like it's worth it. You have to believe on your own that Jesus is worthy of whatever he asks. Eric Feldman wrote in Moody Monthly about a Chinese couple he met on one of his travels in Hong Kong. One of his missionary friends there was like, you have to meet this couple, but he wouldn't tell him anything else. And so they traveled and they went into their small apartment and when they knocked on the door, a man in his 60s answered the door. And upon entering, he goes in the apartment and he meets this man's wife also in their 60s. But it, he wasn't there very long before he noticed something a little peculiar. That these two 60-something-year-olds were acting just incredibly smitten with each other. They kept smiling lovingly at each other. They were holding hands. They were touching affectionately. And, and Feldman started staring, kind of being creeped out by this, Right? Because he's not used to seeing six-year-olds be this affectionate. And even though there's a language barrier, they noticed, the couple noticed that he was staring and getting weirded out, and they started giggling. And so they told the translator, tell him it's okay, we're newlyweds. And that's when he started to hear their story. That they got engaged in 1949 while he was a student at the Nanking Seminary in China. And on the day of their wedding rehearsal, the day before they were to get married, the communist government seized the seminary and took every single one of the students to hard labor prison. For the next 30 years, she was allowed to come one day a year and visit her fiancé for about five minutes. And each time following the meeting, he was called into the warden's office and he was told, you can leave today. You're a free man. You can go home and marry your bride. All you have to do is renounce Christianity. And for 30 straight years, he answered with a single word, no, and turned to walk back to his cell. After 30 years, the whole class was released suddenly with no explanation, and he was finally able to go home and marry this lady who'd waited on him this entire time, and Feldman asked him how in the world he'd been able to withstand the imprisonment, how he'd been able to stand with the labor and the abuse of his body, how he'd been able to withstand being denied his marriage and family for so long when all he had to do was say, I renounce and not even believe it. And his answer was simple. He seemed incredulous at the question. He said, with all that Jesus has done for me, how could I betray him? You see, there's no working ourselves up into some sort of evangelistic frenzy. There's no sort of like self-creating a passion for the lost in us. There's no crucifying of consumerism and self-absorbed Christianity by our sweat and our tears and our effort. Those all come hand in hand with a steadfast belief that Jesus Christ is worth it that he's worth all of it, 
that he's worth whatever he asks, that he's worth whatever is taken from us, that he's worth whatever it is we have to give up. Because after all, after all he's done, how could he not be? And so we're praying that he would create a movement of people among FBN who call out to him, who ask him to help us see and believe deep in our core his worthiness. And then we may live our lives as if we actually believe it. Let's pray. Father, you are worthy of all of it. You're worthy of all our praise. You're worthy of all our cost. You're worthy of all our devotion. You're worthy of all our effort and all our sacrifice. What you have done has more than proved that. Who you are has more than proved that. But the question isn't of your worthiness. The question is whether or not we believe it. Whether we believe it enough to endure suffering, whether we believe it enough to endure cost, whether we believe it enough to crucify consumerism, whether we believe it enough to have a heart for people other than ourselves whether we believe it enough to genuinely want to see your kingdom expand, not ours. And so, Lord, we come to you. We come to you repentant of trying to live a life of ease. We come to you repentant of any time we've chosen uh, the less harder path. We've come to you repentant of anything that, that, that you've laid before us and we decided, no, that's too far, that's too hard. I'm just not gonna do that. We come to you repentant of a lack of burden for people to know you. We come to you repentant for our consumerism, for our self-absorption, God, for every way that we hinder what you want to do in our lives. Lord, would you raise up a congregation of people who believe that you're worthy of it all. And once you have us there, use us as you see fit. We ask this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Before we have the joy and privilege of witnessing a baptism this morning, we're going to give you a couple moments just to spend some time responding to what the Lord may have said to you or some things he put on your heart. This is a chance for you to, to pray to him and reflect before you just move on with your life and forget what he may be trying to say. And so please take advantage of this time.